Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On January 15, 1978, an encrypted message came across the teletype machine at the office of Clarence Kelly, director of the FBI. It was from the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, and it read, Subject Dalton Lee, interviewed between 7.09 p.m. and 9.39 p.m., January 14th, at Mexican Federal Service HQ in Mexico City. Lee waived Miranda rights. Lee expressed a desire to cooperate. However, he seemed evasive and his answers did not inspire confidence in his complete truthfulness. Lee made the following admissions. He has known the subject, Christopher Boyce, for 10 years. They attended high school together in Palos Verdes, California. Their activities regarding the Soviets began in the summer of 1975. Delivery to Soviets of various documents including KW7 crypto cards, documents pertaining to communication satellites, and other top-secret documents and photographs. Throughout the interview, Lee maintained that he had done nothing wrong during any of his dealings with the Soviets because he understood, through discussions with Boyce, that he was a subcontractor for the CIA. They were disseminating false and misleading information to the Soviets. What wasn't in the encrypted message to Quantico was that when Dalton Lee gave this account to FBI agents in Mexico, he had already been in the custody of the Mexican Federales for more than a week. It also didn't say Dalton had been tortured and charged with murder. It couldn't begin to foreshadow the storm that was about to befall two young men in the South Bay of Los Angeles for the terrible decisions they had made. Within hours of the message arriving on the FBI director's desk, it landed on the desk of President-elect Jimmy Carter. Within days, the arrest of the one-time friends would be on the front page of newspapers around the world. 
Over the coming weeks and months, the nation and the world would follow the trials of Christopher J. Boyce and Andrew Dalton Lee. They would be charged with conspiracy, espionage, and treason, a capital offense that could warrant the death penalty. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer, and this season we're telling the wild story of how two friends ended up perpetrating one of the most notorious acts of espionage in the 20th century. This is Episode 5, Espionage and Treason. In late November of 1977, Chris Boyce put in his resignation at Thompson Ramo Wooldridge. At the same time, he applied to and was accepted to the University of California at Riverside. His co-workers decorated the Black Vault for Christmas on his last day, December 17th. They gave him a proper send-off at one of their favorite local bars. The final note in his employee file read that Chris Boyce had been conscientious and dependable. He had been an asset to the company and was definitely eligible for rehire. Starting in January, Chris would be a full-time college student again, studying political science, history, and Russian. No one at TRW knew it, but Chris's change wasn't about a genuine desire to finish his education. He had accepted a deal from the Russians. They would pay for college as long as he studied the right subjects, and it would put him on the path toward joining an agency like the CIA, where he could provide them with even better top-secret information. While Chris celebrated a new phase of his life, Dalton was thankful just to be alive. Dalton had made a trip to Mexico in November that had gone horribly. He had gone directly to the Soviet embassy and was rebuffed. He threw a tantrum full of empty but ill-advised threats. The next thing he knew, he was grabbed, stashed in a car, and driven to a vacant part of the city. The KGB agents with him in the back seat said nothing on the drive. But when they shoved Dalton out of the moving car and onto a patch of gravel, their message was clear. Watch your mouth and stay away from the embassy. Back in Palos Verdes, Dalton was then arrested, again, during a traffic violation just after the new year. By the time he posted bail, he had missed his scheduled January rendezvous in Mexico City. Dalton was in dire need of cash, and he had one last parcel of satellite documents that Chris had grabbed before his final day. So, he bought a plane ticket and flew to Mexico City. He arrived on the morning of January 6, 1978. He loitered in a spot where he hoped the Russians would see him and make contact, but they didn't. He was late, and he couldn't be certain that they wanted to see him at all. So, Dalton made the decision that led to his downfall he returned to the Soviet embassy. For hours, Dalton watched the building from down the avenue. No cars left and no one entered. Except for someone who briefly looked past a curtain, the embassy was motionless. But Dalton was not willing to accept that they were closed for business. He lingered, pacing near the gates. Finally, a car pulled up. Dalton sprinted to the car and just barely caught a glimpse of one of the passengers. It was Boris, his KGB handler. Dalton shouted, but Boris completely ignored him. 
Dalton's desperation turned to rage. He allegedly scribbled the letters KGB on the cover of a Spanish-English dictionary and tossed it over the metal fence. A guard approached the gate and sternly told him to leave. But Dalton persisted. Just then, a Mexican police car pulled up. An officer stepped out with his hand on his gun and told Dalton not to move. Another police car arrived and then another. Dalton began to walk away, dropping things from his pockets and stashing his illegal materials deep in his coat pocket. The officer surrounded him. Immediately, Dalton pleaded his case. He was a tourist who was visiting a friend and they had gotten separated. He was just lost. One of the officers questioned him about what he had thrown over the fence. But when they all looked through, the dictionary was gone. The guard at the gate had grabbed it and he wasn't giving it back. The Mexican police didn't want to risk an international incident with the Russians, so they let that part go. They searched Dalton. Along with his wallet and passport, the police found the fake postcard that the Russians used to tell him where to meet. Then the police found the photo negatives of the information that Chris had stolen from the black vault. Dalton tried to explain by saying that he was in the advertising business and the pictures were for his job. For the time being, the police believed him. Unfortunately, he had no explanation for the half-smoked joint the officers had seen him throw on the sidewalk. They began to put him in the back of a police car. Just then, out of sheer coincidence, a U.S. State Department employee was leaving the Soviet embassy. As she walked to her car, she witnessed the scene outside the gate. She heard Dalton's pleas to the police. She asked the police why they were detaining an American citizen. Dalton begged the U.S. diplomat for help. He didn't want to disappear into a Mexican jail. The diplomat had a phone in her car and she called for assistance. The embassy immediately sent over a lawyer and a CIA agent. While Dalton waited, the American officials and the Mexican authorities discussed his fate. All the while, the Russians watched from inside the gate. The lead police officer kept pointing at the postcard and the negatives and then back at Dalton. The American diplomat nodded. The usually impulsive Dalton did something he rarely did. He kept his mouth shut. After 20 agonizing minutes, the huddle broke. The Americans returned to their cars. The diplomat gave Dalton one last look and the Mexican police took Dalton into custody. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. On January 12th, six days after Dalton was arrested in Mexico, employees at TRW in Los Angeles arrived at work and were stopped in the lobby by their security staff and FBI agents. The Black Vault, the hub for top-secret transmissions and Chris Boyce's workspace until two months ago, was closed until further notice. The ten or so people who worked in the vault were probably worried that their days of partying on the job were over and they would be in the near future. But that wasn't the problem right now. They soon found out that there had been a major security breach. Top-secret documents relating to spy satellite programs, encryption cards, and the covert transmissions had been taken out of the building. And the rumor was they had been sold to the Soviet Union. The name on everyone's lips was Chris Boyce. As it turned out, a great deal had happened since the Mexican police had arrested Dalton in front of the Soviet embassy six days earlier. The police took Dalton to headquarters and handcuffed him to an interrogation table. They took a closer look at the photo negatives and realized they were marked top secret. Once they developed the negatives, they realized they were photos of schematics for what appeared to be a satellite. They grilled Dalton about who he was and why he was really in Mexico City. Terrified, Dalton made every excuse he could. He pleaded to speak to an American. But when the investigators brought up the postcard, the problem clicked into place. Dalton knew no one was coming to help him, and he was in far more trouble than he realized. The Russians used a simple system to communicate with Dalton. When it was time for a meeting, they sent him a postcard with some sort of monument on it. Dalton would go to the cross streets of the monument in Mexico City, make a mark on something nearby, and then wait for further instructions. This time, the cross streets on the postcard took Dalton to a place where a Mexican police officer had been gunned down in broad daylight a week earlier. The cops believed the shooter was linked to a militant communist organization, and they now believed Dalton was working with the organization and the Soviet government, and that he was the shooter. Dalton denied everything and quickly came clean about what was actually going on. He told them that he was trading in military secrets that were stolen by a friend in Southern California who worked for a company that had contracts with the U.S. Department of Defense. Dalton said he was mostly just a drug dealer who played spy games to fund his cocaine and heroin deals. He knew nothing of militant... He knew nothing of militant groups and a political murder. 
the investigators all but laughed. This American was claiming that he was some sort of rogue spy and a drug dealer at the same time. That story was less believable than all his other excuses combined. Dalton begged them to call the U.S. Embassy or the Federal Bureau of Security, the Mexican equivalent of the FBI. The cops didn't either. They were out of patience with Dalton Lee. They tied a blindfold over his eyes, stuffed him in a car, and drove him to an undisclosed location. For the next eight days, Dalton endured grueling and violent interrogations. The Mexican authorities were convinced he was a Soviet operative who wanted to overthrow their government and had killed one of their own. Dalton was deprived of sleep, food, and clean water. He was beaten repeatedly, and his head was held under the contents of a filthy toilet. He was promised that if he didn't confess, he was promised that if he didn't confess, he would be killed in one of a dozen terrible ways and his family would never find his body. Dalton refused to admit to crimes he didn't commit, but he repeatedly admitted to the crimes that he did commit. Finally, on January 14th, Dalton was allowed to talk to an American. Two agents from the FBI sat with Dalton in a dark basement, and they didn't seem to have any problem with how he was treated. But they promised to take Dalton home. All he had to do was give up the rights that people normally have when they're arrested and give a written statement. Then he could have a shower and a hot meal, and he'd be back in the U.S. in a few days. Dalton agreed. In his statement, he went all the way back to his childhood when he and Chris Boyce had been altar boys together in Palos Verdes. Two and a half hours later, the FBI agents had the confirmation they wanted. Unbeknownst to Dalton, they had been watching Chris for more than a week. The Mexican authorities had shared the information that was found on Dalton's photo negatives. The FBI agents had shut down the black vault at TRW. While the FBI was taking Dalton's statement, Chris was out in the wilderness with his birds, enjoying a relaxing time that he didn't know would be his last for a long while. Two days later, as federal agents escorted Dalton back into the U.S., Chris Boyce, known as Cristobal to the Russians and codenamed the Falcon, was arrested. Chris had been renting a guest house on a ranch not far from UC Riverside, where he would be starting classes when the spring semester began. In mid-January, he and a fellow falconer headed west toward Mount San Jacinto with their birds in tow. If Chris had stayed closer to home, he might have received a call from people in Palos Verdes who had been visited by the FBI. One of his co-workers might have called him after the FBI swarmed the Black Fault. But in 1978, without cell phones or pagers, Chris was out of reach. Still, he felt in his gut that something was wrong. He hadn't heard anything from Dalton since Dalton arrived in Mexico with the final shipment of top-secret intelligence. When Chris contacted a friend at Dalton's usual hotel in Mexico City, there was no record of Dalton checking in. Chris assumed something was wrong. Had Dalton been captured? Had his mouth finally caught up with him? Was he already dead? But even with his suspicions, Chris never thought about running. So on January 16th, when he and his friend returned to the ranch after their falconry trip, Chris Boyce was not surprised when his car was surrounded by FBI agents with their weapons drawn. 
Chris exited his vehicle slowly, raised his arms, and identified himself. The agents pushed him to the ground and slapped handcuffs on him. A few cursed at him and called him a traitor. Chris didn't struggle. His rights were read, he said he understood them, and he only asked that no harm would come to his bird. By early afternoon, Chris was alone in an FBI office in the federal building on Wilshire Boulevard on the west side of Los Angeles. The agents told him that the FBI had been to his home in Palos Verdes. His father was in shock. They also told him that reporters were already hounding his family for information, and it was only going to get worse. The sooner he told his story to the feds, the sooner they could help him. But repeatedly, Chris refused to go into detail about the stuff he had taken from TRW. Then, as the sun set, Chris told one of the agents that he would talk. But before he did, he wanted to know one thing. Was he the only person being charged with anything for the stolen documents? The agent paused. He knew he shouldn't share information, but he thought it might encourage Chris to explain everything. The agent revealed that Dalton was arrested in Mexico. He was being returned to the US and he had been charged with espionage and treason. Chris took a deep breath. His friend was alive. Their friendship had been strained lately, to say the least, but that didn't mean Chris wanted Dalton to die at the hands of the Russians. With that, Chris recounted the shorthand version of everything that had happened in the last year and a half. He explained displeasure with the government and especially with the intelligence community. He focused on the government's interference with other countries, especially their ally, Australia. He went on at length about the lack of security at TRW, he outlined how he smuggled the secrets out and how, to the best of his knowledge, his friend Dalton passed them on to the Soviets. He spared no details about his frustration with his drug-addicted friend. Dalton hadn't been giving Chris his fair share of the money from the Russians, and Dalton had tried to set up a side business with the Soviets to smuggle drugs. The next day, Dalton was back in Southern California. He was officially booked in Los Angeles and was forced to tell his version of the story again. Dalton held firm to the belief that he had been convinced by Chris that they were both working for the CIA, not against it, and that he thought he was serving his country all along. That same morning, January 17, 1978, the tale of the espionage case was on the front page of the Los Angeles Times newspaper. The headline read, Two Palos Verdes Men Accused of Being Russian Spies. Soon, newspapers around the country would be following the story. But reporters in bullpens weren't the only ones hard at work gathering details about the two friends. The office of the assistant U.S. attorney for the Central District of California was also on it. They were building the case of the United States of America versus Christopher J. Boyce and Andrew Dalton Lee. A federal grand jury eventually indicted Chris and Dalton on eight charges. They all had to do with conspiracy, possession, and planned transmission to a foreign nation of documents that were classified as top secret. The allegations were violations of the Espionage Act. They were capital crimes, and the prosecution could seek the death penalty. But the trials would not go as smoothly as the indictment. Chris and Dalton had different legal teams, and they would be tried separately. Chris's team was assembled by his father. 
They were trusted and they were competent, but they didn't have much experience litigating a show trial. Dalton's family was wealthier. They hired a high-powered Ivy League criminal lawyer and a young, charismatic local lawyer. Early in the process, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, and the White House made it clear that the majority of the documents that had been stolen from TRW would remain classified. They wanted a conviction, but they were more worried about guarding their secrets. That meant that the prosecutors were limited in what they could use against Chris and Dalton. And that decision essentially saved both young men. The prosecution chose not to seek the death penalty because of the limitations about the classified documents and the publicity of the trial. However, life in prison for Chris and Dalton was still on the table. Chris's attorneys attempted to make a deal. In return for Chris's full cooperation with the CIA about every detail of the operation, they asked for a sentence of 12 years in prison. The prosecution laughed, so Chris went to trial first. It started on March 15th. Chris's defense hinged on the argument that the specific documents that were being admitted by the prosecution were not that valuable and should not have been classified top secret. If they were overclassified, then they were worthless to the Soviets. If the documents were worthless, then Chris did not commit espionage or treason. The prosecution rolled out experts who testified that the documents were highly valuable to the Soviets and their exposure seriously concerned the intelligence community. Beyond that, prosecutors argued that Chris had weakened national security, risked the lives of operatives in the field, and endangered the lives of Americans at home. That was compelling for the jury and damaging for Chris. Chris's lawyers paraded out a line of character witnesses, teachers, family friends, even his old Monsignor from St. John Fisher Church. And then Chris testified, which is a rare thing. On the witness stand, he claimed Dalton had lied to him, held out money to support his drug deals, and had even blackmailed him to continue when Chris wanted out. Chris's bitterness at Dalton's recklessness was plain. Chris enumerated a list of grievances against the U.S. government that drove him to commit the acts. The Watergate scandal, the Vietnam War, the coup in Chile. But when he detailed the U.S. government's interference in Australian politics, he was stopped by the objections of the prosecutors. He had said enough, though. Newspapers rushed to print stories about America's facility in the Australian outback called Pine Gap. They relived the fiasco with Prime Minister Gough Whitlam and questioned why the CIA had concerned itself with democratic elections of an ally. But Chris's litany of grievances didn't sway the jury nor did his claims that he had been blackmailed by Dalton. In the end, the jury deliberated for just three hours. They found Chris Boyce guilty on all counts. When Dalton went to trial right after Chris, his defense centered on two things. Number one, anything that happened in Mexico was inadmissible. Number two, Dalton had been manipulated by Chris to believe that they were working for the CIA. The judge ruled that Dalton's testimony to the FBI agents in Mexico would stand. So would any testimony for anyone who took part in or witnessed his arrest. The Mexican government refused a White House request to participate in the trial against Dalton, 
but the U.S. diplomat who had tried to help Dalton outside the Russian embassy before he was arrested did testify. She said she saw the photo negatives that Dalton had tried to give to the Russians. Then a forensic expert linked those negatives to the specific Minox B spy camera that had been used to take them. FBI agents found it in Dalton's childhood bedroom when they searched his family's home. For Dalton, the case looked really bleak, and that was just based on espionage evidence. The jury also heard all about his drug activities. The jury might have felt more sympathy for Dalton when he told his tale of his violent interrogations in Mexico, and they might have believed the story that his friend had duped him into thinking he was working for the CIA and spreading misinformation that would help their country. But then they heard about Dalton's life as a drug dealer. His drug world associates testified that Dalton bragged about how his dealings with the Soviets were bankrolling his drug business, and soon he would have the Russians doing all of his smuggling for him. Then a series of women testified. Some went to Mexico with him while he set up drug deals and delivered stolen secrets. Others he had tried to impress with his spy game stories. Still others, he had turned into addicts with cocaine and heroin. Dalton's jury deliberated longer than Chris's jury, but the outcome was the same. Dalton was guilty on all eight charges. The former friends awaited sentencing at Terminal Island Federal Prison in Long Beach Harbor. They both agreed to talk to the CIA. The hope was that participating in a transparent debriefing would encourage the judge's leniency when he handed down their sentences. They had not, however, spoken to each other in any meaningful way. There had been harsh words or no words. For the time being, Chris and Dalton were willing to blame the other guy for everything. Dalton received his sentence first. He was allowed to make a final statement before sentencing, and he maintained that he had been framed and used by his friend. The judge saw it differently. Not only had Dalton committed federal crimes by selling top-secret information to a foreign government, but he was a known drug dealer. The judge gave him a life sentence in federal prison. Two months later, Chris Boyce returned to court to hear his sentence. He spoke eloquently to the court about the corruption in the country's institutions, but he admitted that that was no excuse for his actions. He maintained a slim degree of defiance but showed contrition overall. Chris avoided a life sentence, but he received 40 years in prison. Dalton was shipped to Lompoc Federal Prison, 175 miles up the California coast. Chris was transferred there about 18 months later. There was some poetic justice in their destination. The prison was near Vandenberg Air Force Base, the launch site of the missile that took the first ever keyhole reconnaissance satellite into orbit. They were scheduled to spend at least 40 years in a prison right up the road from the place where the first spy satellite was launched. And scheduled is the key word in that sentence. One of them decided, on his own, to leave prison a little early. There is still so much more to tell in the story of Chris Boyce and Dalton Lee. Next time on Infamous America, the full story of the young spies becomes public. There's a best-selling book, and then a movie, and then a sequel to the book when one of them organizes an early exit from prison. The end of the saga is next week on the season finale, 
here on Infamous America. Members of our Black Barrel Plus program don't have to wait week to week for new episodes. They receive the entire season to binge all at once with no commercials. And they also receive exclusive bonus episodes. Sign up now through the link in the show notes or on our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. Memberships begin at just $5 per month. This series was researched and written by Jamie Lyko. Original music by Rob Valier. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube. Just search for Infamous America Podcast. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.